What'd you say? Hmm? What? I didn't say anything. When? Right now? I'm sorry, don't listen to me. One masculine. Hi, I'm Madeline, and I'm a writer and a cultural critic. I'm Dave. I'm a comedian and actor. Welcome to Genre Reveal Party, where we talk about TV and movies through the lens of genre, its definition, its limits, and what we can learn by exploding them. Each episode, one of us chooses a TV show or movie to discuss with spoilers, because you don't need to have watched The Thing to enjoy the podcast. Okay, so we're nearing the end of our season, uh, Family Matters, this first season, in which we're discussing representations of family and the family form, dysfunctional families, various family matters, as we said. Um, and we're taking up genre really as a family problem in itself. Um, and this week, we're taking a trip down memory lane, however awkward, and watching the Royal Tenenbaums. Um, but before getting into this, I wanted to talk a little bit about the season itself and how we've been approaching um, this list of films. So if our project was coming up with a list of the best films about the family, it would look um, totally different. Some of these <laughs> movies are really, really bad. We may be interested in quality, but most of what we're interested in is genre troubles. Um, so as we've been wrapping up and finalizing the last inclusions in the season, I've been thinking a lot about how to frame this list we've made and, you know, what different kinds of lists would include. And I wanted to say a couple of them. So, well, really just one. So I think the best film about the family, which I was asked recently, you know, what, what do you think is at the top you know, quality wise. And I would say it's Charles Burnett's um, 1978 film, Killer of Sheep. Have you seen that, Dave? No, I've heard of it. And I, I've had it on lists for years and never seen it. Yeah, well, it's a pretty um, upsetting film, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> sure, sure. But um, it's about a black family in the Watts district in Los Angeles. And um it's a series of vignettes following different members of a family and how they are basically torn ap apart by various forces, um, among which are the father's work at a slaughterhouse, a white woman's store owner, and um, perhaps most horrifyingly, the police. Um, and so I just wanted to say that, you know, um, another film that a lot of people have suggested to us is The Shining seems like a very obvious family film about, you know, the terror escape of a white patriarchal private family, this like severe isolation. A lot of people um, also, you know, seem to turn back to it during COVID and think about mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the ways in which um, it <laughs> really perfectly captured COVID life. Um but both of those films have a clear understanding of what they're doing with genre. And so they don't have any place on, on our list. Um, I also think that yeah. uh, it's not, not too much of a stretch to say that there's been quite a bit of scholarship about The Shining. And maybe we just uh, don't have that. Maybe we're not going to be the guys to like. No, we're fucking, not. Yeah. <laughs> add, add something to the mountain there. Read Frederick Jameson and Joanna Isaacson on The Shining. 
Um, okay, so Burnett described his film as a film essay, which I think is perfect. Um, and The Shining, I would say, is a very kind of classic domestic horror ghost story. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of complicated stuff going on, as you say, but like genre isn't one of them. So with quite a lot of otherwise obvious candidates for the theme of this season, um, this has been the case. And I wanted to say also, Step Brothers is my favorite comedy about family, but it is a pure hilarious comedy and it is nothing else but that and so the genre question is again not interesting there so this is all to say that i was mulling all these things over and i suggested what we talk about this week was um the royal tenenbaums because um yeah i want to think about the genre troubles and i want to think about specifically wes anderson's genre troubles when we were talking about um, a serious man, one of the interesting kind of moments I found with Shira was reflecting on whether the Coens was a genre, whether they have mm-hmm. a coherent genre. And, you know, we could ask this of a lot of directors. I was having a really interesting conversation with my friend Phil yesterday. We were talking about Mike Nichols and how cool it is that you can't, you can't just um, identify uh, a Mike Nichols film off the bat. Like there's mm-hmm. a particular character to them, but they're all really different too. Um, and he goes into different genres and aesthetics and, you know, I would, Wes Anderson is not that. <laughs> so um, yes, for sure. And I think while I said, I don't think that the Coens have a specific genre. Um, I would say that, Wes Anderson does. I, I think that the Coens bounce around between genres and they kind of do their Coen-esque spin on the genres. But mm-hmm. I think Wes, Wes Anderson is like, is a genre. <laughs> yeah, so I agree. I think yeah. we'll get to that. But anyways, um, so I was really inspired after I saw Asteroid City last week, um, which I walked into feeling very skeptical. Um, to be honest, I just really wanted to see a movie that day. Mm-hmm. And there's a movie theater a half mile from my house. And I wanted to take my kid. And that was the age And you didn't want to see Fast X. <laughs> that is not at that movie theater. It's like a cool revival theater. Oh, and nice. they show like one kind of moneymaker out of their four theaters every week. So I cool. I understand why they had it. I was kind of like, well, if I'm going to see this, I'm going to see this in the theater. This sounds fun. Um, But it was the first time I'd seen a Wes Anderson film in the theater since Life Aquatic in 2004. So it's been 19 years since I've seen any of his movies. I felt really a lot of distance from him. Um, But it turned out I really loved that film. Um, And I would recommend it to you, Dave. I'm sure you haven't seen it. I haven't yet. No, um, You think I would like it? Yeah, I think you, well, we'll see after this conversation, yeah. but <laughs> I, I, I was thinking it's, it's not for people who don't know Wes Anderson. It's for people who maybe once loved Wes Anderson and grew tired of Wes Anderson mm. at a certain point. Mm. Okay. Um, because it's really putting his aesthetics into, into crisis in in interesting ways and in asking questions about what the hell is the point of these beautiful tableau? Sure. 
And I found that really refreshing and like a relief. It's like, finally, we get to question this. Right, right. Totally. So, okay. So um, we can talk about that more. Um, I wanted to start off the conversation about Tenenbaum's kind of thinking about this whole arc, though, with Anderson's career. So I'm going to throw this to you. Uh, Dave, to share some polling that we did on social media. Yes. From um, our listeners. I, I just want to say, it mm-hmm. sounds like you're getting a lot of good feedback from people and people asking you what the ideal, what the best family movie is. I, I just want to say, where, where are the people asking me that? Where, hey, people who listen to this show and know me, ask me that. Why Why does Madeline get to be the only one who gets asked cool questions? Um, so that's, I just want to say that. Because you I'm had this sorry. very beautiful, thank you. I, I appreciate it. I don't know why just people aren't asking of, you. I know. Everyone's like, what's the thing? You've got this beautiful layout. I'm, I'm like, what do I even think is the best family movie? I don't know. Because I haven't thought about it that deeply. <laughs> I'm just trying to keep the season afloat. Oh. <laughs> I but, did kind of okay. throw us into this theme too. So. I like it. I like it though. You know. So okay. So, uh, f- so we had a couple of film specific polls. This is all on Twitter right. at Genre Reveal Pod, and but the first one was just general. Um, Wes Anderson films are blank, either mm-hmm. nostalgia and pastiche, emotionally deep, politically reactionary. Or other, in parentheses, please specify. Okay, so of 38 votes, I would say a a handy, uh, you know, more than two times any other option. uh, The one that won was Nostalgia and Pastiche. Is that the one you voted for? That's the one I voted for. What did you vote for? You don't want to say? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because it's so bad, I'm... I'm creating these polls. I'm stacking the deck. I'm, re- you know. <laughs> you want to <laughs> pretend so that you're frustrated. not voting in them? I'm so frustrated because there's only four things I can do on these polls, too. Yeah. And yeah. Um, and then I, f- I really, f- I'm much more interested in the other, please specify, you know? Sure, sure, But sure. I just want to get so, people started with the other ones. So I'll be honest. I said politically reactionary. That's what I would have guessed. I would have guessed <laughs> politically reactionary. So, uh, so, okay, a couple of responses to the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anticlimaco, at Anticlimaco, said mm-hmm. other all of the above. Samuel Catlin, at Lint underscore Axe. Caitlin. Uh, said, I said other because I don't think any of these well describes his entire oeuvre, but each of them describes some specific films of his very well. Uh, my pal, Ali, who contributed a little bit to the uh, Fate of the Furious episode uh, through some some conversations we had, said, annoying and twee, sorry. And then the don't emoji be sorry. With, the, with the hands over the eyes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's a... a a uh, a rare opinion at all. No, it's uh, fine. <laughs> and then <laughs> Olivia Stowell, who I mm-hmm. think who we might end up quoting in some other ways later on, uh, said other, and then in parentheses, often formally excellent, often emotionally hollowed out, often evasive of the political, mm-hmm. which feels, I mean, that's pretty spot on. Then 
we did the very specific um polls we had Mm -hmm. what is the best early wes anderson movie and what's the best recent wes anderson movie the early um options were rushmore royal tenenbaums bottle rocket and life aquatic those are his Uh, first four yes no one voted for life aquatic uh the winner (laughs) uh almost twice as much as any other option was rushmore yes and unabashedly we'll say that's what i voted for that's because because we talked about it before we started recording you're a rushmore guy i'm a bottle rocket yeah i am such a rushmore guy yeah yeah i feel i feel weird like some of my opinions of wes anderson are just very obvious and we also talked about this before we started recording like i feel like they've been stated by other people and i also feel like for a long time it was like looked down upon to be a bottle rocket guy because it was like, well, he perfected it in other movies. And I'm like, I think he kind of left behind a lot of the stuff he was doing yeah. in Bottle Rocket, even in Rushmore, which I also like. But anyway, okay. Yeah. Best recent, the options that uh, you, Madeline, laid out were. Well, they were all but the animated <laughs> kids' movies. I know, I know. Yeah. I know. Uh, the was French Dispatch, Asteroid City, Grand Budapest Hotel and Moonrise Kingdom, winning pretty handily there, albeit among a smaller sample size. It is interesting that the recent Wes Anderson movie poll got about half the votes of the old, the early poll. It's like, yeah. are people like following along less? But um, yeah, I haven't Moonrise seen Kingdom mm-hmm. was the was the winner. Have you seen Moonrise Kingdom? I have seen Moonrise. I have not. I remember seen... actually kind of liking Moonrise Kingdom to my surprise. A little yeah, but I forget why. I, it's been a while. I never feel clean about these movies. Yeah, They're always yeah. such a mixed bag. But I I really enjoyed watching it. Um, but that's the only one of the... That and Asteroid City is the only recent one I've seen. So, And that comprises all but three of his movies, too. This right. whole Fox, He's not Isle of Dogs, of and what's the other one? Um, Darjeeling, right? Right, 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 yeah. right, right, right. So yeah, so those are the those are the polls. Those are the polls. Okay, so um, we're gonna go to lots of places. We're gonna talk about some of those films. Um, but I want to give some overview of the Royal Tenenbaums, which is really you know what we're di- discussing today. So this came out in two thousand one. It was a few months after nine eleven, <laughs> and I wanted to note this is the same year that the iPod came out. And yes, it feels the iPod, not the iPhone with no. music on it. Right. Which the some iPod. people don't even remember. Right. I know. And I remember this, like, I didn't have an iPod. I had some, like, um, MP3 player, though, that I was like, just a really at a cheapo one. Friends part. Was it called, like, a Zena or a. Or a Whatever that or was, I had the worser one. You know, <laughs> I just had a really horrible one. Okay, that would, great. Yeah. And then it, there was a certain point where I was like, oh, fuck this. I'm just going to carry around this portable CD player. <laughs> That's what Love I remember. I would have like three CDs always on me in college. But anyways. Um, Can we talk about skip protection for a second? <laughs> no. I feel like that's a thing. Like at it's the risk terrible. of sounding too old guy, that was a thing because the CDs would <laughs> yeah. skip. But certain CD players had 10 or 30 seconds of skip protection, meaning you could like bang on the case for 10 seconds and it would still play through. But if you 
if you banged on it after that. The kids these days don't appreciate the value of a. Good I did not skip have protection. skip protection. I can just say that. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a. I really, did occasionally. All of my technology was bad. I had a. I also had a Dell computer. You know, dude, you're getting a Dell. Who didn't? Who didn't? <laughs> Anyways, that was that moment, and I wanted to say that because it's a very soundtracky movie. All of mm-hmm. his movies are very mm-hmm. soundtracky. I would say this is the most soundtracky. It's like a nonstop music video. And mm-hmm. um, a lot of what I took from this movie was its soundtrack. It felt like a very cool, like I was an only child slash older sibling to some half siblings much, much younger than me. You know, I did not have a cool older sibling who gave me music mm-hmm. or anything mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. I had a best friend, Jasmine, who was like very into music um, and we just ate up the soundtrack. We were 16 and we were like, we recognize half of these songs and we, you know, we knew Nico was really cool because of, you know, the velvets and stuff. But like these days and like this led me down a Nico solo mm, kind of moment for a yeah. long time. It, it was really, you know, there's not enough I can say about the importance of this soundtrack, which um, I would say is maybe more influential than the movie to our generation, you know? Interesting. But let's just kind of leave that aside yeah. um, for now. We'll talk more. Okay. So the movie is super, also super J.D. Salinger-y. Um, it's a world of a family of rich, artistic geniuses, child prodigies, very Franny and Zoe. Um, living in New York. Um, the patriarch of the family, Royal, played by Gene Hackman, is kicked out of the family for being an asshole. And um, we don't really get any more details on that, but we don't need any because he is just a huge it asshole. It seems like so. he maybe cheated, but, but maybe not. Yeah, yeah, he just, yeah, he's a pretty miserable fuck. He's an asshole. And yeah, um, yeah. so anyways, so... When we meet the family 22 years after this, um, he's trying to scheme his way back into the family. Um, he's super racist and misogynist in ways that the film doesn't really quite reckon with. We can talk about that yeah. later. Um, so then we have Ethelene Tenenbaum, who's the mother, played by Angelica Houston. She's also an archaeologist. I love Angelica Houston in this movie. I same. Yeah, I mean, there's really, problems of, to have, but not that. There's a there's a handful of performances that that were really saving graces. Yeah, to this movie for me, and hers hers is one of them. She, I think this is ooh, maybe the best thing, except for the Grifters that she's in. Whoa, um, really? I love the Grifters a lot. I gotta yeah. see. There's no she. Hopefully, she did better movies than Royal Tenenbaums. No, no, right? no. I don't think it's the best movie. It's the best performance. Oh, you know? interesting. You know, okay, okay. Um, different claim. Okay, okay. Yes. So their children are Chaz, Richie, and Margot, played by Ben Stiller, Luke Wilson, and Gwyneth Paltrow. They are all child prodigies who've become depressive has-beens in their adulthood. And then there's some characters who orbit the family um, and like Royal want to be in on the family. So that includes Eli Cash, played by Owen Wilson, who is their neighbor. Um, Raleigh St. Clair, Bill Murray, who is Margot's husband. 
and Henry Sherman, Danny Glover, who wants to um, marry Ethelene. So Chaz has two sons, and his wife was killed in a plane crash the year before. Other than Chaz, most of these characters are involved in one of two love triangles of men competing for either Ethelene or Margot. And in the latter case, um, it's uh, Margot, Raleigh, and um, Eli, and Richie, okay, her brother. Um, so here I'll note that Margot is adopted and I I would like to also note emphatically that this was a detail added late into the script (laughs) to diffuse the incestiness of her relationship with Richie. I guess that that was some feedback that was received. There's a history of, right? Like, isn't House of Yes incesty? There are plays that are are, like... Oh you yeah, know, it's a it's a subject, but I didn't I didn't realize that. That's an interesting yeah. yeah. Okay, so at the beginning of the film, in their adulthood, all of the children are again depressed. <laughs> they're isolated, and through a series of events, including Royal faking cancer so that he can spend time with them, um, they are brought together to sort out their sense of personal failure and whatever rifts have come between them, and they're all living under the same roof again. Um, so. There's a lot to talk about, but I'm excited to hear what you have uh, to say about, you know, revisiting this movie. I'm sorry I coerced you into it, Dave. Don't be sorry. I am I'm excited. <laughs> so let's chat. Yeah, I mean, what was it like for you to rewatch this? Tell me a little bit about, you know, when did, what were your feelings? A lot of what we're talking about here is what this meant to us 20 some years ago and what this means to us now. Well, I think this was the first, you know, what is this? This was the first Wes Anderson movie I saw. I would have (laughs) been in high school, 2001. So probably a junior in high school or depending on when it came out, maybe a senior, but it was at December, 2001. Mm hmm. Okay, so that makes sense. Because I thought it was in college, but I was a senior in high school. Mm-hmm. I it was at the Artie Movie Theater in downtown Cincinnati. What God, I forget the name of that place. But that reminds me that this is one of those like when you're in for me, uh spending time in evangelical Christianity delayed my my entry into cool stuff cool movies and and yeah uh albums and stuff but so for me it was in like late high school college when you're being like turned on to like the wide world of like oh there's more than just mainstream culture this was very indicative to me of like oh this is a this is an art movie this is a cool movie this is the movie we go to the art house theater to see Mm. and so it was like awakening that side obviously like a very mainstream version of that i'm I'm aware now but so that's what it kind of represented to me like this like cool thing you were like supposed to be into if you like had taste and Mm. i i don't know if i'd seen it all the way through since seeing it in the theater in 2001 wow and 
but my memory was like, I remember kind of disliking it or being disappointed or confused with it. So I was excited to rewatch. I'm like, people really love this movie though. Bottle Rocket is not just like my favorite of his movies. It's genuinely one of my favorite movies of all time. I do really like Rushmore. And so I was like, I know this is the exact point at which I fell off. Maybe, you know, watching it again, it'll, it'll be a different experience. And I watched it and it just, I don't know now what my experience was that first time. Maybe I, maybe I loved it. My memory feels very unreliable, but watching it this time, I was just like, man, this is just so many of the things I dislike in (laughs) art. Just, just the like, it doesn't feel, and, and nothing I'm saying is new, is like a new revelation. It's, it, that's why I feel self-conscious. Cause I'm like, I don't want to be just someone parroting the, the, the critics who dislike this movie, but that's a little bit what I am. And it's just like, it doesn't feel alive to me. It doesn't feel, um, people talk about how there are these like depths of feelings under mm-hmm. the worlds that, these very meticulous worlds that Wes Anderson creates. And I just don't see it. It just doesn't feel, I don't think those feelings are, I don't think those depths are there. I think they're like cheap, you know, imitations. It's like clearly well crafted, but it has as much interest for me personally as seeing a really well crafted, like antique rocking chair or, or something else that's like, Sure. I, if you really love rocking chairs or, or something, or if you really love Ottoman covers or whatever, it, I, it, it, there does seem to be a fact that I'm thinking of like furniture that, mm-hmm. that like this movie does feel like furniture in a lot of ways. Yeah. So, so I was really, I was really frustrated to feel so it, it's, it's hard to win with, 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 with Anderson movies, <laughs> but. Because it feels like some people love them, and that feels kind of basic, and some people hate them, and that feels kind of basic. And yeah. it's like, where's the like nuanced opinion with this? It, but it did really, at least in my life, signify a shift in culture. And so yeah. I'm hoping we can talk about that. You said that you're, you were like upset. You watched this movie a bunch, right? When you when it first came out. I want to hear about 2001 Madeline getting in. Uh, Okay. Well, I loved Rushmore and saw that when it came out um, and then saw Bottle Rocket. So by the time I saw Royal Tenenbaums, because I was a, I was a film nerd. I was the film critic for my high school newspaper and stuff like that. You know, um, into it. Yeah. And I had really high expectations of this movie. And then I think what I was reflecting on is that I just felt obligated to like it, basically. You know, mm. I needed to like this. And there were a lot of films um, like that at that time when I was trying to kind of sort out my own, yeah, sense of being a film critic, aspiring film critic or something like that. What were the yeah. others? What were the other, like, obligated tastes? Oh, God. Well, the ones that I've really been beating myself up over um, are like, yeah, Woody Allen. Oh, you know, the Woody sure. Allen movies. And I even I was talking to um, 
a friend from high school about like when we went to see the pianist by Roman Polanski in high school. Um, I was, I was just buying into this idea of these very problematic directors too. And their, their artistic genius kind of justifying their monstrosity. Um, Mm -hmm. like I was never, I was never like, Oh, Woody Allen didn't do it, you know, but I still, it wasn't at that level at all. Um, Hashtag free Woody Allen. Really believed that, yes, I really believed that Roman Polanski, um, you know, raped a 14 year old girl. The problem is that I was a 14 year old girl when I was reading that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'd have sex with Roman Polanski. He's kind of cute, you know? Yeah. And it wasn't, and I was also just, very much being conditioned by like a culture mm-hmm. of nineties Loli- Lolitas and things like I just listened to the Karina Longworth episode on, on that figure. I was like, Oh God, this is really mortifying and terrible. <laughs> so I, I think the ones that I, I look back on with the most shame come from that impulse of just yeah. buying into what the AFI list was telling me, buying into what, you know, critics who I appreciated, were um heralding as like the great films i also i was a scorsese guy i'm very mm. much not a scorsese guy anymore okay um, sure things like that so you asked but yeah 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 i uh, i loved this movie in that kind of obligatory sense i do think i mean i still love the soundtrack and i do think that that is ultimately what I got from it. It was just really influential on my music taste. Mm-hmm. Um, spun me in a bunch of directions. All of his movies from that period are the like Rushmore as well, like a great mixtape, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, again, like from a cool older cousin or brother or something like that, who's just like, check this out kids. And um, so I think, that's the impact for me now. And I had forgotten a lot of this movie because it had been so long um, since I'd seen it, but it was in college. We watched it quite a bit. So that was like mid two thousands. I think, and I saw life aquatic and then I, again, a great soundtrack. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was, even more kind of skeptical and like running in a crowd that just seemed to uncritically consume this stuff Mm -hmm. um, and dressed and wanted to be like Wes Anderson characters and things like that. So (laughs) does this resonate for you? Yeah. Even like at the time, because we went to the same college and, and the, even at the time it feels like there's a way that people could hate Wes Anderson and still kind of be a Wes Anderson character. Definitely. Yeah. 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 So that was the moment, right? And I just needed to forget it and walk away from it. Um, But I'm listening to what you're saying. I I really do want to hear your thoughts on asteroid city when you see it, if you see it, Um, because he is, I think it's like his midlife crisis film or something like that. Like it's just okay. very interesting and devastating. And um, he does seem to be questioning the depth of his aesthetic in 
pretty profound ways because I don't think it's trying to to justify anything that he's done. I think it's it's really self-critical. Um interesting. Kind of messy. I like it. <laughs> that sounds good. I mean, that's the weird thing is like I would almost watch any Wes Anderson movie right now yeah. even though I didn't I really disliked this one because it's like, well, this has been built up enough. People right. say there's something there, so I'm interested. But I think the you know, the way I was at right as Royal Tenenbaums ended when I watched it last night, I was like, man, is there a way I can construct a reading of this movie that makes me like it to really like wrangle it? And the way I would have to do it is to say that the artifice was there to undermine itself to to. And it's like, well, Okay, but you can do that for one movie, but he's made a career out of this really meticulous artifice. He's not just trying to undermine it. It's not just like, you know, I know that uh, Olivia Stowell, like on Twitter, mentioned uh, Brecht. And and it's like, it's not just a Brechtian technique. This is this guy's thing, you know? No, yeah, it is. I mean, I'll bring that up now. Um, so she was writing... Um, I feel like if Wes Anderson is committed to using estrangement effects, um, but not in a Brechtian way, i.e. to thwart identification and reveal objects, history as both constructed and changeable, it would be more effective to have more moments where cracks appear in that mode style. Right. Um, and I completely agree. But this was reflecting on, you know, what what's actually kind of different about Asteroid City um, breaks apart this kind of redundance uh, redundancy in his in his filmography um, and it's it's interesting because he went into animated stuff and mm-hmm. that didn't really resolve any of these problems you know and it, it's like he wanted that to break him free of this cave, dollhouse cage he'd put himself in or something is that why he did it? Like, do you think that I don't know. in a way it seems like the that. perfect way to have a dollhouse? Because you no longer have to deal with living human actors. Yeah. So I wanted to I wanted to talk about that because let's start with the acting. Okay. I mean, okay, we've talked great. about the music, but like the acting. So Gene Hackman, um, also, I'll give you some hot goss on Gene Hackman whenever <laughs> yeah, you want yeah. for the production of this, but he was apparently asked about the characters in this film after he made it. Um, and he said, characters, what characters? All I saw was a bunch of little kids dressed up in costumes. <laughs> really? Um, I mean, that's ha- what a salty I, dog. <laughs> I know that the, I know that the gossip doesn't paint him in a good light, but hard to argue with that with that assessment of things in my mind at least yeah and it's interesting that that's what he was he was thinking about as he was in the process of making this right Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and explain some of so the part was written for him and he rejected it um and it took a year to get him to agree um to do the role and kind of one thing I was curious about, what, what do you think about this casting? Um, he was going to, the second choice 
was um, supposedly Gene Wilder. Right, which is wild. Like, such different – just Wes Anderson like, – it almost strikes me as a very Wes Anderson thing that he was more obsessed with having an actor named Gene than having a specific type <laughs> of actor. You know what I mean? Maybe. <laughs> but, yeah, Gene Wilder – I mean, I think – it's interesting because the acting performance, at least at the time, that was far and away praised the most was the Gene Hackman performance. Yeah, he won a Golden Globe. That does not crack my upper echelon of performances in this nope. movie. Nope, nope. But I think because he is at odds with the movie in some mm-hmm. ways is maybe why it stuck out. He's gruffer. He's, you know, a little... I, I don't know. The texture of his acting is a little different than the texture of the movie. I think Gene Wilder, man, it, it, I mean, I, I, I can't picture an older Gene Wilder performance. So maybe that's part of it. But I think I can only imagine he would have brought some more like lightness and joy and and real pathos to it. Like I did not. If the, 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 his redemption at the end, like, mm-hmm. boy, did I ever not buy Gene, le, like, Mm-mm-mm-mm. no, if there's a moral of this movie, it's like, maybe people can change a little bit. And it's like, I don't buy that at all <laughs> from him. Yeah, I, I completely agree. But I kind of think besides being named Gene, both of them are very mercurial you know and um i'm just thinking about Willy wonka and <laughs> sure <laughs> i mean yeah i think he could have got i think he could have gotten a lot of these notes and maybe done it better and maybe been a more compliant actor but <laughs> sure. we'll see, you know sure. i just wanted to note that well give your um, give your anti-compliance your your goss from from okay so yeah so what I really love about this story is that it renders Bill Murray a kind of hero, and Bill Murray <laughs> is a completely abusive asshole and has, like, lots and lots of stories is about, he? yeah, about being abusive on, on sets, and um, at least one of his films have, like, completely shut down recently um, because of his behavior. Um Ooh. So That's yeah, cool. I mean, I only knew the he has a thing bad of him reputation appearing as a kind of like weird figure in people's lives, like showing up at weddings and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to even go that far into Bill Murray, but sure. he has like domestic violence uh, in his past, on yeah. um, a very bad drinking problem, and like. That has led him to other kinds of mm-hmm. violent outbursts. Um, so he is not a hero. I'm just okay. saying that. Okay. But yes, he yes, is yes. the hero somehow of this story. So he started showing up on his off days um, from filming. And this maybe explains why his part is so small in the movie. <laughs> because he was basically working as Wes Anderson's bouncer like at a certain point in the, in the filming. Because Hackman was just constantly bullying Wes Anderson, especially, but, um, Paltrow also said that, you know, she was scared to work with him in Houston, Angelica Houston. I have a quote from him. I was, 
a lot scared, but I was more concerned. My, I was more concerned with protecting Wes, right? So, wait, that was like the, that was that was Angelica what Angelica Houston, Houston okay. said. Yeah, gotcha. So Bill Murray started showing up on set, and there was you know the scene where they're in the park, Angelica Houston, Gene Hackman, and they're having this kind of heart to heart moment, um, going on this little walk. I guess that was really this um, crisis point in the production. Gene Hackman had just become unbearable. And so Bill Murray showed up with a cowboy hat on and he stood on top of this big rock in the background and was like looking over the filming um, to step in when he needed to. Um, And I find like his paternal relationship with Wes Anderson very interesting um and how that's kind of yeah. been worked out through a few of the movies and maybe this one too with the like uh I was listening to uh Paul Shear talk about this and he said that he thinks that Wes Anderson is Dudley <laughs> and I thought that was really funny uh, that, <laughs> I, yeah I can Dudley makes my upper echelon of performances in this movie. Yeah. So Dudley is this like teenager that Bill Murray's character is like studying for having this fascinating disorder. Right. Just a combination of, of colorblindness and amnesia and dyslexia basically, which like, yeah. Yeah. It definitely sounds like bespoke for Wes Anderson to make, a joke, but not a yeah, terrible, know. you know, a I know. decent little joke. But, and that guy, do you recognize that actor as... He's from Freaks and Geeks, Freaks and right? Geeks. Yeah. Are you a Freaks and Geeks fan? I love Freaks and Geeks. Me too. Yeah. And I love like, his character too. And he's like the same guy, except he's a yeah. dungeon master in Freaks and Geeks. It's like, uh, love man, it. it took me a while to remember, but yeah, Dudley, Dudley makes my upper echelon. Angelica Houston makes my upper echelon. Stephen Lee Shepard, I'll say. I, I just want to give. Sometimes okay, I feel yeah. bad just giving the the actor name the or the character name, but um. Oh yeah, yeah. But yeah, do you? Who else makes your upper echelon of acting performances in this movie? Uh, ben Stiller. Interesting. Okay. I and I, I've never really found him that compelling, but this mm. when I was watching it, um, again I was very struck by his character um, because he's kind of, okay. So I mentioned before there's these love triangles. There's Ethelene and Royal and Henry mm-hmm. are battling it out for her. Mm-hmm. And then there's Margot and she's got all these men around her battling it out. And Chaz is really the only family member kind of not in one of those things. He's got his kids. He's kind of left out. And um, I find his arc really kind of lovely and and emotionally deep. Like, I think there's a lot of surface level shit going on in this movie, but he's grieving his wife and um, there's like moments of real subtlety that I, I enjoyed. And then that last line that he says to his dad where his voice cracks. He said, I've had it. He's finally like opened himself back up to his dad. Who's mm-hmm. like harmed him so much. And he says, I've had a rough year, dad. And his like voice cracks. Wow. And the fact that that shot, you know, it was like 
a really long shot with a lot of things going on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he has this one line and he just really landed it. I I thought it was perfection. I do I did I do like that line. Um I just think it's unearned in the context. It, it's like yeah, but maybe yeah. it is maybe it is a testament to Ben Stiller's acting in that moment. And and reading criticism about this movie, that mm-hmm. moment seems to have lingered with people a lot like that moment seems to start to tower over the rest of the movie, I think. Yeah. Um, I think it does a lot of the work for Gene Hackman. Yes, right? And for the whole movie. Yeah. It it, it yeah. like it it could add so much depth, but it just isn't supported by enough of the rest of the movie it's one of those things where it's like if you've had a tough year and who hasn't had a tough year another thing around this a little after this uh that was that felt like it was part of the indie zeitgeist indie zeitgeist you remember that mountain goat song this year Mm -hmm. yeah i'm gonna make it through this year if it kills me a great fucking song man but it's like who who can't relate to I'm going to make it through this year if it kills me. Every year feels like that. So it's like a tough year. It can like, it's, it's almost like a cheat code to, mm. to relationship with the audience a little bit. So I don't think it's a horrible moment, but it just doesn't. I'm like, it's too little yeah, too late. But man. no, but there's that scene, the scene where he has packed all of his bags and his kids and mm-hmm. they're moving into the mom's house. And he shows up and he tells her, you know, it isn't safe. Yeah. I I love that. I love that scene between the two of them. I think it's a great scene. Also, I just want to say, Danny Glover is great in this movie, and he does not get enough material. Um, oh, to, yeah. No. <sighs> it's, it's, it's upsetting uh, in his case, where you're, you just want something more there. But for what he's got, he does a great job. He does a great job, but he's almost too sweet. It's like he's he's so he's such his character is so uncomplicatedly kind that it's like, oh, really? We're going to leave the one black character in this movie. Just make him a beautiful, amazing, shining example of a person is like, I know. Yeah, he doesn't get to be a brat or anything like that. But nor does ethylene and that kind of makes them yeah a really good partnership so i would say like their relationship as a little bubble within this whole mm-hmm. frothing bullshit it's very good it yeah shines. yeah i and i bought it and i yeah i liked it i liked it yeah, yeah. i like it okay so i wanted to say something what i really figured out yeah upon rewatching this okay which I find a totally obvious and B very understandable why I didn't get this when I saw it as an adolescent. Okay. I'm fascinated. These, this is a movie that, that is about children and childhood. And, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, I did not appreciate that about, and I would extend this to all of his films. They're all about children, childhood, childhood trauma, um in some way and um and i just it it's stupid that i didn't figure this out since being a child and watching these movies but sure i think that is what really spoke to me about this and 
part of why I didn't notice some of these problems at first. Um, so this does extend to his, you know, his aesthetic, the dollhousiness, the Mark Mothersbaugh scoring feels very childish. Mm -hmm. And I love that about it. Um, but I wanted to, and, and also kind of the way the characters behave, they're all, and I would include Henry and Ethelene in this. They're just very sweet and goofy. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, and then the other characters are they're kind of split. Like what I'm seeing here is that there's there's a kind of pro-child celebration of childlike wonder and imagination going on, which I really like. Uh -huh. Okay. It's caught up in all of this stuff about like white innocence, which we sure, need to actively sure. reject. Yeah. But the way in which it's really about telling these child stories, I find really redeeming, but I'm also, they're also kind of in lockstep. Uh, it's, it's troubling how that gets glopped in with, um, immaturity, you know? Say, say more, help me, help okay. me understand more. So it's like, Children can be wise, right? Children sure. aren't just um, selfish and whiny and immature. Right, right. Right. And so it's kind of like the adults have, they're like the worst kind of children. You know? mm -hmm, mm -hmm, <laughs> but mm -hmm. the children in, in Royal Tenenbaums, and I would say this is one of my favorite parts of Asteroid City is these um, these adolescent and younger children characters in that movie. Um, they're complex. They have lots of things going on. Mm. They're real. He's interested in child prodigies, I think for the JD Salinger kind of thing, but there's also this deeply imaginative, creative um, kind of so yeah. Celebration of childhood um, that mm -hmm. that's also going on. So I wanted to say this and kind of reminds me of a Spielberg kind of a thing, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um it's a little bit Spielbergy, but um but I don't think it's I don't think it's the same thing. I think it's almost anti-adult in some ways. Sure, sure. Um yeah. like what we like about Ethelene and Henry, they're definitely the most like quote unquote mature people in the but room but they're also very innocent and childlike exactly. as well yeah yeah and they we know that they they don't have any the way that he proposes marriage to her she doesn't even have any sense that he has a crush on her but he he's had this like crush on her right um, which doesn't feel very adult feels very like a child's yeah. understanding yeah of the, yeah 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 <laughs> so those are also aspects of their relationship but i think we can trace these through a lot of his, um, a lot of his movies and their kind of ambivalence about grown up, grown up stuff, you know? And I think that that, if I'm going to take like a utopian kernel from his movies, that is it. Like, I think that's really unique hmm. and beautiful. And it, once I started thinking about that, I was, it was unraveling. I was thinking a lot about how, yeah. A lot of the aesthetic choices he makes do make sense then, because 
it's coming from this perspective, right? Um, well, what feels kind of retrograde about it to me, though, is like, mm-hmm. I almost like, I like what you said about it being pro-child, but then I don't like it being anti-adult. Because it's like, it it feels like the way in which it's anti-adult is a desire to stay in a, an idealized version of childhood. Mm-hmm. Because if we're saying children can be wise, then we're also saying children's struggles are not just solved by, oh, it'll be better when you're older. It's it's saying right, that right. their anxieties are real. It's saying that their worries are real. And so it's like, yeah. if you're pretending that childhood is just this magical land of imagination and sweetness, then of course you see adulthood without the complexities of like, any reasonable way to navigate conflict. I, I totally agree with him. I, I agree with what you're saying. And I think that's the, that's the problem with his movies, right? Yeah. Is it's like, it has this thing going for it and it doesn't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very, I mean, it's a Peter Pan problem, right? It's right, like, right. Um, it's, it's, yeah, I think you're saying what you're saying is, you know, it's anti-adult, but for all the wrong reasons, you know, there's plenty right. of reasons to be anti-adult. Yes. But, or anti-certain you know. kinds of adults, you know? Or, yeah. Yeah. Or maturity or right, like just right. being, being deeply skeptical of what, what these things mean and how they're like attached to like disciplining ourselves as capitalist subjects and these <laughs> right, right, things, right. you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, it's kind of trapped in this state of arrested development like these characters though the mm-hmm. aesthetic the narrative perspective and i was seeing it all as like actually um very coherent you know um yeah yeah at all of these levels right it really hangs together as a p yeah i mean you can't say that his shit is not cohesive or well crafted yeah and i was thinking about this too so a lot of people have talked about how history doesn't happen. So we find out in the end, Gene Hackman's character, he dies, spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> we see his gravestone and it says 2001. And right. it's like, oh, that's what fucking year this is. Right. Because right. I have no clue about that at all. Even when we see quote unquote modern technologies like television, we're seeing them on these like retro TVs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We watch Eli Cash being interviewed by a kind of Charlie Rose type of yeah, uh, who interviewer is that actor? On a program. I've like seen, it, seen him recently. That actor is... I don't remember. He's such a good character actor. I wish I'd... Yeah. He's in a bunch of Paul Thomas Anderson. Oh, okay. Find out his name. Okay. But um, we'll find out his name. But um, even that, like the aesthetic of that... I remember in in that time, I'd watch Charlie Rose or whatever, it, you know, mm-hmm. my dad at night. And it felt very... Like, is this the 70s? This kind of feels like um, one of these, you know, throwback programs. Yeah. Well, it's in a fucking black In a black room. Yeah, yeah. So it's the perfect, like, contemporary object to, like, intrude on the space. But no one has phones. Mm -hmm. Um, There's weird eccentricities. Like, I was noticing... Bill Murray's toothbrush is kind of modern, but then, you know, he has like this um, recording device that's super retro and antiquated. Okay. I guess the cigarettes that 
Margot smokes are like they're out of date. Like they 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 stop being produced. You know, thirty years before the movie mm-hmm, came out. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's and I always found that really annoying about this movie and all of these movies is that they're so ahistorical. Um, yes. But then, again, once I started thinking about the arrested development of these characters, how they're just trapped in this, like, depressive adolescent state in, you know, 20 years later, it kind of made sense to me that that's, you know, what their world looks like, you know, and they're living in these little bubbles and the world gets smaller and smaller and smaller inside of this house. Right. Which I mean, is a b- is a big beautiful house, a by gorgeous the way. house. Yeah, but uh, that you know, yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, it, yeah, that that they're so you're saying that they're that the reason it feels out of time is that time has stopped for them. Yeah, and that we're yeah that we're yeah. kind of entering into this narrative world of of these characters, and that's you know that's the quality of it. Um, that feels right to me. I mean, totally. I, I, I get that. I mean, it feels like a snow globe. It feels like a, yes. like a, 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 it, it feels like the, the TV representation of a snow globe where someone's holding it and then it zooms in and the snow globe world becomes real. Like, right. yeah, it feels like, yeah, it, it almost feels like a rift happened in their childhood where something went wrong, and this is the Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe version of their yes. world where something, where their dad failed them and everything went wrong. And if they can just do something, they can get back to when they were all teenagers and restart it and things go right or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, uh, this is again not to justify it, but I just had a. I guess a deeper appreciation for what was going on. I I was very dismissive of this for many years as just being, you know, a wallpaper, um, just super aesthetically driven. I, I grew so tired of people saying that they're emotionally deep. It was like, there's no depth anywhere. It's (laughs) all so flat. Right. But then I was thinking about how these are these repressed characters who can hardly look each other in the eye, who can hardly say anything about how they feel. Um, the mise-en-scene, the set design, the costume is actually reflecting their um, interior emotional yeah. life in some way. I think yeah. imperfectly, in ide- definitely idyllically, but I think that there is some kind of relationship going on there that there's something a little more to it than I initially felt. I mean, clearly some people think so. It's just really tough to reckon with like watching this movie and it doesn't move me. It's, it's, it's the experience of like, yeah, yeah. It feels like depression. Absolutely. I get that. And, and that's another one of my upper echelon performances is hmm. Gwyneth Paltrow. I think she's actually what? like really she's good. She's actually in this good. Movie. Yeah. Wow. Um, are you, are you at all influenced I'm a GP hater. by the I can't, goopiness I can't. of her? 
I can't. Um, <laughs> I can't. I can't assess. You know I, what I, I mean? think almost because she's so like bad for the world now, I almost am more interested by like, hey, maybe she, maybe she had an alternate version where she was just like a good character actor that I, I think she gives. She's the one character who I both read the depression on the surface and by some depth under the surface. Mm-hmm. Whereas Luke Wilson's character, and I like Luke Wilson as an actor. He's fucking great in Bottle Rocket. But yeah. the idea and, – and, and not to be too like, this would never happen. But there's some things in this world – that just stretch credulity so much like yeah the suicide the suicide attempt is like fucking insane in this movie dude like when when he, like his reason for doing it is because so he's been in love with his sister for 20 years not even touching mm-hmm. the incest stuff just you've been in love with anyone for 20 years that you know well enough She's married, so you've and you've seen her with other people. Then you get this dossier from a private investigator saying she's made out with a bunch of people over the years, and so you fucking slit your arms like what? It just feels so. And it's like not to mention aesthetically, it's played with no. I hate that scene. The stakes of that. It's just another thing that happens in this movie. Whereas, to give Wes Anderson credit, in Bottle Rocket, Luke Wilson's character, Owen Wilson, breaks him out of this, like, psych ward, this rehab place. Mm-hmm. And Luke Wilson's, like, it, it's haunting, uh, like, over him. Other characters are like, oh, I heard you tried to, like, kill yourself, or you were really depressed, or whatever. And it's like, the whole movie, in some ways is in response to his mental state. So it really hangs over and like has weight. Whereas in this movie, it's just, it's, I I mean, it's almost played as a joke. It's, it's taken that seriously. And it's like, yeah, that shit's rough, man. And I, and I did not buy, I'm like, really, this guy's just that in love with his sister. Like that is like, like, you really think there's a chance and like, you really like understand so little about the world that you're, I mean, I get the joke of it. It's like a lonely Island bit almost of like taking the shoes and socks off at the tennis match. But for that to be Mm -hmm. not just a sketch and part of a movie, I found it really hard to believe some of those things. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't like that scene at all. I found it um, just really, really disturbing. And it was interesting. I, Kyle, my partner, had not seen the movie before, which I found really weird. Yeah. But he was in college, so um, living in a hole. But um, I watched it with him, and that scene started in a... I was like, this is the scene I'm not going to watch, Kyle. And I just went into the other room. Mm -hmm. And I told them, you know, what it was about already. Um, And I just heard from the other room, like, oh, like, (laughs) yeah, shock. And he knew what was going to happen. And it helped me appreciate 
no, I, I don't know. I'm not, I mean, I think at the time it was something I was processing as part of the moment. So this is like Prozac nation, girl interrupted virgin suicides. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This movie, um, there's probably a, quite a few others I just forgot, but there were so many movies that, um, were just around in adolescence that really casualized and romanticized suicide attempts. And it was, you know, I had, I had not had friends who'd killed themselves yet, but that, you know, I had mm-hmm. friends who were cutting themselves and there's, right. you know, a friend who was hospitalized, like a lot of us did, you yeah. know, like, it's not that that was distinct to the nineties and it definitely got worse in the two thousands. Um, but I had a moment of pause of how I would, I was just thinking how this sat with me when I was a teenager and what I wasn't, wasn't quite getting about, about it. And I think that this is getting back to the childishness of this movie. This is where, I need a, I need an adult in the room. I need, or, you know, to borrow from that horrible phrase, I need somebody to think about like responsible representation. <laughs> and I'm I somehow mean, yeah, okay dude. with, I don't know why you know, it feels square to be like, to be like, this is like, cause I feel it too, to be like, yeah. I feel weird chastising it being like, this is not cool. But it's fucking not, dude. The thing it reminds it's me of is cool. that Steve Martin quote where he talks about, like, when you're younger, you'll joke about anything because you feel like you're going to live forever and all your friends are healthy. And then as you age, you start to, like, stop making jokes about certain things because you know people who've right. died or or make them in different ways. And And in that way, it feels like a very young immature in all the worst right. ways movie exactly yeah and and i don't care about okay so i getting back to the margot of it all i related a lot to this character okay. i had been a secret smoker since the age of 13 Love you it. know wore a lot of eye makeup yeah i was gonna ask yeah you know <laughs> um fancied myself a writer these type of things mm-hmm. i could see myself having some kind of inappropriate daddy romance with somebody (laughs) like a Raleigh St. Clair in my, in my late twenties, you know, there's a lot there and I, I'm fine with that all. I'm fine with how it romanticizes her smoking and, Mm -hmm. and how at the end she doesn't, she doesn't quit. (laughs) Sure. She's not going to quit. Yeah. Fine. But that's, that's different from the suicide stuff. No. Oh, it just goes at this like totally different level where I guess, yeah, I do feel a little bit weird and square saying this. Like, and there I don't is know a time why, and place though. to represent this, but this is not how to do it. Right. You know? It's like, it, like I'm, like I'm fine seeing all of the visual pictures that were shown mm-hmm. in this movie. It's just for it to be sold in this way is so. Yeah. Like, I'm like, dude, you can go further with this and and like i i just i uh just watched john wick four that movie has more respect for life than royal tenenbaums <laughs> does it's like like it's just so it's and i know you uh 
since we share the same research document, I know you noticed this as well, but I had the same mm-hmm. thought about Elliot Smith. the Elliot Smith shit, the yeah. needle in the hay. So intense. Because that was a really intense, I mean, I don't think it was, obviously he wasn't as big as Kurt Cobain, but that's like the shade of a Kurt Cobain moment we got. Because mm-hmm. I don't know if you were on campus yet, but there was a little vigil on the quad for I Elliot was. Smith. That was when I started, uh, that was... Yeah, so he died two years after this movie mm-hmm, came out in 2003. Mm-hmm. That was my freshman year in college. Okay, yeah, yeah. I went to that. It's right. so funny. Did That's, you go to it? I didn't go to I mean, to it's that. not funny. It's No, not no, no. It's it's funny, strange. Our crossed lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no, I, di- I didn't go. And I thought it was, I, th- I thought it was like kind of weird. I didn't like fully understand it. Mm. Um, and, and, and I think ultimately, as with any like, great artist who it's sad they die tragically ultimately the great thing about them is like you don't even need the myth of elliot smith his music is just fucking incredible dude. it's so good it's you true. know yeah but like but that tragicness of it it is very eerie to see that and weirdly now have this deeper thing we yes. can project this movie benefits so much from what we project onto it i know and it kind of made me wonder, so you and I, we remember those two years and the like, very well, like, we saw this movie, two years go by, yeah. then Elliot Smith right, dies. Right. But for somebody who's just watching this now, I wonder, you know, how the, it, it feels cheap and wrong that Elliot Smith is the soundtrack to this. Yes, scene. I mean, yes. It really brings out these dis- distasteful elements. And of course, that's not intentional, but it's like, Oh, like let's for the 20th anniversary. Let's like lay on a different track. Like, please, I'm fine with it. Like, go George Lucas. Like, do a little bit correction. It's fine. Yeah, what would you play <laughs> un- under that little Spanish fly? Oh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, so that was kind of. It was also really. um incredibly referential of this louis mall uh film the fire within okay um yeah i saw that reference but i haven't seen it it's 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 another film that's very stylish and cool and about suicide and um i would say i've i've only seen it once i'm not gonna see it again it really disturbed me when i saw it Mm. and um i was aware at the time of this referentiality and um but it does seem like the scene is kind of trapped in the reference. You know, it it's wanting it's wanting to do this citation. It's not really thinking it to, I mean, it's clumsy, I would say, in a lot of ways. Sure. But um kind of bound up in this really controlling desire to have these have these reference points, have these aesthetic dimensions, you know, but not really thinking and so I was being very kind and thinking about like the relationship of the like emotional repression going on, right? And this is why we don't get depth right, because it's right. repressed. It's all bubbling and so over now. So then it spills now. over right. into aesthetics. But but this scene is like in many ways symptomatizes everything that is fucking wrong with Wes Anderson, you know, it's, yeah. it, that it is and I absolutely feel it's all style, no substance. Uh-huh. And um and it hangs over the whole movie 
in this way. It does. It's one of the most memorable things about this movie. Yeah. Like, I remembered the suicide. I remembered the tracksuits. I remembered the color of pink. Those are the first things that come to mind with this yeah. movie. Yep. By the way, the actor who um, it, oh, who ho- does the Charlie Rose show, is his name's Larry Pine. Um, and Larry Pine is in some Paul Thomas Anderson, right? And he's also in X-Files? Is that see. true? He's in, he's in a lot of... Um, this is that dude you know what he is this is what what i recognized him from top of the list of his recent performances 11 episodes of succession as sandy furness oh duh yeah he's sandy yeah yeah okay thank you yeah that's why um it's it looks like a lot of um uh i mean a lot of tv oh he he and i were both on an uh an episode of Chicago Met, so that's something we have in common. Oh. Um, I don't see that much. Got that in common. I see a lot of other Wes Anderson movies. I don't I see. see Paul Thomas Anderson at the moment. I um, might be mi- mixing him up with um, one of those other guys. So funny. Um, Maiden Manhattan is also apparently guys. one of his big, uh, one of his big roles. But Sandy oh. Furness, that's why I was like, I was yeah, like, is right. that a real guy? Like, I almost didn't think it was an actor. I'm like, that guy hosts a show similar to this, right? And then, but it's just like the weight of the Sandy Furness character. But You're maybe so right. that yeah. is a good segue into another performance, which is the last mm-hmm. of my upper echelon. And okay. I and I suspect you might disagree. So I'm curious what you think about Owen Wilson's performance. Because he is the funniest part of this movie to me mm. makes this movie like this movie is so much worse without the Owen Wilson performance. Mm-hmm. He's a huge part of what makes bottle rocket good. What do you yes. think of Owen Wilson in this movie? I, I really, I think he's a great character. Um, okay. And yeah, it's one of my favorite Owen Wilson performances. I'm not, I'm not an Owen Wilson fan clearly. Cause I said that, but Something I know, though, having done some reading about this, so this was the last um, collaboration between he and Wes Anderson as writers. Right, 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 right. right. He's come up in some other films as a, mostly as a small character role, Um, though not always, but at the time, he was doing a lot of cocaine, he was acting really full of himself. And Wes Anderson uh, wrote this part for him. It's clear that Wes Anderson did most of the writing of the movie. Okay. And that Owen Wilson helped him kind of flesh it out. But they were kind of working through this thing in their relationship. I see. But who... uh, He was acting full of himself? Like, is Wes Anderson not full of himself? Oh, I think he's full of himself. I'm not trying to redeem Wes Anderson. I just feel defensive of my saying, guy. What kind Owen of an Wilson. asshole are you? No, I'm oh, like, what kind of an asshole are you that you make Owen Wilson play this part <laughs> that is making fun of Owen Wilson? Like that's right. what the you know. And there's all sorts of weird stuff around. You know, a lot a lot has been said about Wes Anderson writing this about his own feelings about other families, right? So the Tenenbaums mm. were a real family mm-hmm. that he grew up with. Some of the names of the characters, like Margot, those are real people. Um, He had a childhood friend who was really in love with his sister and suicidal. 
non-adopted sister. Yeah. And then he was really close to the Wilson family. Mm -hmm. And there's ways in which, you know, I know I said Paul Shearer said, you know, he's Dudley, but I kind of imagine him a little bit as an Eli figure too, who's like trying to get into this family that he, he can't quite be a part of. Mm -hmm. Um, Totally. But then he's casting Owen into this role and making it also this kind of maybe passive aggressive, right, maybe right. just like outright aggressive move in their friendship that, <laughs> that he's reflecting all of these things that have happened to Owen Wilson since he found success, you know, largely due to Bottle Rocket, you know? Yeah. Um, no, totally. You know? I mean, it, and, and the way the, I mean, I'm always going to be. Uh, not sensitive in a ready to be offended way, but sensitive in a like, how accurate is this way? I'm always going to yes. be sensitive to portrayals of addiction as an addict myself, you know? So when yeah. we say like, Bill Murray has an alcohol problem, I'm happy to be like, same here. I hope he also is getting help and, you know, has, has moved on. People can, I think people can getting change. into bar fights. So. Okay. Well, that sucks. <laughs> Uh, don't you live near the Cubs stadium? Like he's yeah. I don't hang out near the Cubs stadium. <laughs> he's had these like Wrigleyville stories, you know. Ugh, that's horrible. Yeah, no. I mean, yeah, he, that's why I don't hang out. It's upsetting. Near Wrigleyville. <laughs> but uh, yeah. But but the way that it's addiction hell. is portrayed mm-hmm. in this for Owen Wilson in this is so. First of all, the only specific drug he mentions is mescaline in a very funny scene. But he does I, I, cocaine, though. It seems like it, but th- no, yeah. there's that scene where he's he's um yeah. But I guess it could be another parsing out some lines, right? Guess, yeah, right. sure, yeah. Sure, it's sure. true. It's true. It just true. seems that, and he's on a lot of drugs, is what. Well, right, but said, he's right? like, but even him on a lot of drugs is played the same as any <laughs> other character we only know, know it because he's so saying funny. goofy things and he and paints then, his face and then he paints and his drives, face and so. and crashes the car which by the way just unnecessarily killing this dog like not to i hated that too much of a wimp but like it just feels i i don't know my partner hope is very sensitive to animal stuff and it really makes me realize like how indicative it is of like, I mean, speaking of John Wick, like there's a reason those movies are so yeah. that it's so memorable to people that these guys killed his dog. And it's yeah. kind of believable that they got four movies of revenge out of it, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, sure. Th- this creature is innocent and like, it just was, I know. It's just shit's just a bummer, dude. And then the dad that did not need to happen, but it, it had didn't. this whole thing because then. Gene Hackman needed to get the other dog. Magically, there's this other dog, this Deus Ex Dalmatian, you know. <laughs> yeah, and, he's, and the Dalmatian, he just brings... like the Dalmatian mice. And it's like, what were the mice even about? I, it, it just feels like oh, really... I didn't think about the Dalmatian mice with the Dalmatian. Yeah, I mean, it fe- I, and, and then, and also... Clickety-clack, you know, I don't like that. <laughs> What's clickety-clack? I just like... Like Legos, like oh, sure, that's, yeah. <laughs> well, and another thing about that last, uh, I think it's the last thing you see before mm-hmm. Ben Stiller's line about mm-hmm. it's been a rough year is Luke Wilson talking to the other bellhop who was being pretending to be a doctor, getting quote real medical advice from this guy again, and I'm like, 
I get it as a bit. If it's a sketch, okay. But just as a world that I'm supposed to be invested in, I'm supposed to believe this guy is getting medical advice from the guy everyone knows is a bellhop again at this point? Like, Yeah, I know. It's bad. It's bad news. The cancer thing. Can we talk about the cancer thing, too? Talk about it. Go for it. It just... I mean, this is the moment where it's like, because actually at the beginning, there's a lot of really funny, classic, little good one-linery, like when when Gene Hackman is explaining to his kids that he's separating from their mom, and they're like, mm-hmm. is it our fault? And he's like, no, no, it's not your fault. I mean, we did have to make certain sacrifices as a result of having children. That's funny. That's good. <laughs> like, you know? But then, yeah. But then for him to do this faking cancer thing... And and I, I liked him faking cancer, okay, in the first scene with Angelica Houston on the street. Oh, and then, such and then, a good scene. And then he says, well, I don't really have cancer. And she gets furious and walks away. Great. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Oh, okay? Like, so he's, good. He's not even willing to commit to his lie. But mm-hmm. then he says, no, wait, I really do. Mm-hmm. And she comes back and she says, really? And he takes a beat and he says, really? And then he sets up a fake hospital bed in their house and there's nothing about him that seems sick. And it's like, I don't even believe that the, that as sheltered as they are, that the Tenenbaums would believe he was sick. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's getting at this naivete there's all these different colors of of childishness yeah, right and yeah. some of them are really profound and and cool right um and then some of them are about they're very dismissive of of the character's intellectual capacity emotional yes, capacity yes. these type of things right and it's like how do these people have to have take both care of, those of them yes totally i know I yeah i know and they take care of themselves to pagoda who's there's got to be some point where we say just I don't even need to go that far into it, but what a fucked up character. Yeah. Um totally. Like I rem and I cuz I remember in 2001 watching this movie, seeing mm-hmm. it and like it it it's hard to remember th- watching it now, but there are certain moments where you're supposed to just get laughs from Pagoda being a weird little Indian guy. I know. Like it, it and and like honestly at the time, like I did think that I was like, "Ha, this is so like goofy and silly," you know? And like yeah. and and now realizing how fucked up that is, it's so it's just so it just ugh, it's so disappointing. And and if we're if we're yeah. on the racism, I mean, we've said that 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 Gene Hackman that Royal Tenenbaum is racist, but like it's it's also horrible that Danny Glover gets no lines that overshadow Royal Tenenbaum calling his character that big black bull. You're like, what the fuck? Like talking and then or big black buck or whatever. Yeah, yeah. big ba- big black buck. Yeah, like I don't know. This yeah, shit's, it's uh, it's bad. Yeah, like you like you almost can understand a character who's like, I can talk jive like. And and you're going into that as like and showing him look like silly, but he does mm-hmm. it so often and so yeah. And and this this movie re- like I just kept thinking about it and I was like, man. Even as a white person, this movie feels like white people shit. 
to me. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm like, it, you could easily just be like, ah, I don't have time for that white people shit. And I'm like, absolutely, that is the criticism of this movie that is the easiest to level that immediately holds water yeah. with me. Um, this is not the same movie, but Moonrise Kingdom. There's this great essay by Kathy Park Hong where she she kind of talks about how that movie, and I would say, let's extend this to all of his movies for the most part is about like reconstructing white innocence through the white child. Um, Okay. Right. And that that's really at the root of what he's interested in, in children. And I think that that's, I think that's right on. I would say that it's more of a contradiction um, in his work. Like I, I see these ways in which um, it's trying not to be that sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that it's actually deeply skeptical of what it's doing with these tropes, but it's still doing, it's still revolving around the same tropes, right? So how much of that skepticism really matters? And also that skepticism seems to be, you know, just yet another facet of this, like, ironic disaffected um tendency of the of these films you know like of course it, it's like, on the one hand going to have this like extreme sentimentalism this fetishized white child mm-hmm. and then it's also going to kind of like make fun of that you know oh white it has people. to do that yeah because yeah. it's also about hipsterdom and yeah right yeah. right um yeah no those are big problems um, and you can't ignore them. So I wanted to bring up two things though, getting back into the child stuff. So yeah. I was really interested in like Donna Kornhaber wrote an entire book about Wes Anderson's films, um, that I just read like the Tenenbaum section from in prep for this. But okay. her argument is that the subject of the film is a quote is quote, the painful impossibility of a return to home and childhood as a response to adult trauma. And that, uh, yeah, she makes this case that the longer the Tenenbaum children spend in their childhood home, the smaller and smaller their worlds become. But I, I was interested in how her, you know, it is about children, but it's, it's responding to adult trauma, right? So there's a kind of re- uh-huh. reversion that's happening in the movie that, um, you know, it, I, I, I find that to be a compelling reading. She also says there is the family, which the, there are three major tendencies in Wes Anderson's work, she argues. So there's the family, which, though often broken, can attempt to be reformed in some way, however flat. Right. Um, there are surrogate families, which attempt to replace and stand for families that no longer or never were able to cohere. And then mm-hmm. there's um, the pairings and partnerships, romantic and professional, that can obviate the need for any wider group. Okay. Which I also found really interesting. How are those last two different from each other? They are a little bit different, right? Because, um, there's surrogate families, um, that stand in to replace, right? Uh And then there's these little partnerships, these little romance, and those are often happening kind of on the fringe of the family and these type of things. 
but all of them are about kind of blocking a broader social possibility. Like there aren't real friendships in these movies. Yeah. Yeah. There aren't really any other kinds of relationships. Actually. I mean, that's what's kind of weird. I mean, there's lots of things that, that are weird about Royal and Pagoda, but like they're supposed to be friends, but they're not. Yeah, all Royal, know, all Dakota does is follow Royal around. But he stabs him <laughs> repeatedly. Yeah, another weird And moment. so there's it's some weird like... kind of. I know, but there's some weird attempt to, like, diffuse the, like, intense colonial right. class right. vibes of their relationship. And, like, right. as if stabbing Royal was this kind of equalizer. I was, I also thought stabbing was, like, kind of a funny, you know, like, it's a little bit homoerotic, you know? Sure, um, sure. So, like, they're shacking up, and he keeps stabbing him. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, but... But there's interesting stuff there, but it's like, it isn't a friendship. It can't be a friendship, right? No, um, for sure not. It's, so yeah. I found that pretty interesting in terms of like mapping the tendencies of his films. And then I want just one more thing, a very different reading from Joshua Gooch in Cinema Journal. He argues that this is about um, that all of Wes Anderson's, Anderson's films um and specifically this one are about fatherhood structured by fatherhood so these fatherhood. aren't about children it's about it's all about fatherhood and so he's seeing this specific film as a castration narrative so yeah. royal is cut out of his family okay? okay okay and then we also want to see like margot she's adopted right when she goes to visit her biological father he cuts off her finger <laughs> Mm-hmm, <laughs> so there's mm-hmm. some interesting like castration um moments at least in this but that he he was really looking at is like royal is the narrative center of this film and it's all kind of compelled by his ca- castration anxiety Mm-hmm. He's been cut off and he needs to rejoin himself to the film. Well, it certainly <laughs> even applies in terms of the race stuff. Like he the reason Very much. the, the yeah. impetus for all of this is that Pagoda reports to Royal that That the black man is Yes. <laughs> the black man is is moving in on his family. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And 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 so, that's one of the impetuses, right? Because right. he also he gets cut out of his hotel that he was living in. Right mm-hmm. for all these years, mm-hmm. so these are the things. It's not just like out of nowhere he just wants to join back in with his family. It's also not that he has cancer, but it's these other kind of inciting events um, of feeling, yeah, disconnected, emasculated, replaced. Right. Yes. Yes. So i i found I found both of those pretty compelling i don't know did you do some reading about this or did that help clarify anything or no i mean that that stuff makes sense the the reading that i did there was a there was a piece um in what's it what's it museum of the moving image reverse shot about um about margot's prosthetic and Mm -hmm. that just being a i mean i kind i skimmed it because it didn't like I was looking for deeper, like, uh, you know, going in looking for kind of anti 
Tenenbaum's criticism. Um, and mm-hmm. this was very much just like celebrating everything that this, uh, that this wooden prosthetic represents. Um, Interesting. And the, yeah. The way, you know, what is, what is it saying here? Uh, I don't, I don't know. It's a, Faux finger appears less as a scarlet letter, even less as a joke than a badge of wounded survival. Mm-hmm. Perhaps the things carried by Anderson's characters will never lose their freighted history, but they can be shared, examined, and used to inch into the future. Out of these objects, one might end up finding a design for living. <sighs> I don't know about that. Talked about like giving, giving the finger to certain things and uh, how flippant her telling Chaz's sons that it wasn't worth it to reattach the finger. Um, yeah. Was, I, I don't know it. Yeah. N- nothing that super moved me. The closest thing I had to my traditional approach to film criticism, as I'm mm-hmm. discovering of find a single skeleton key that explains everything was realizing was here i i I didn't remember the christmas time is here the charlie Mm. brown song which plays twice like it plays like really obviously each time right i i I think so but definitely at least one time with her definitely early with margo um Mm -hmm. it's as um margo's leaving uh god what's bill Murray's Raleigh St. Clair Raleigh yeah as she's leaving to go <laughs> back to name. the house <laughs> and it's like it's played very like quiet uh mm-hmm. and like slowly but then it's played with the vocals at the end and I was like oh my god this is a less emotionally deep version of a peanut strip like <laughs> like Bill Murray begging Margot not to leave him is very much just like a very Linus-y, just like, what are you ever coming back? You know, like, why what have I done? You know, it it I was just like, wow. And it speaks to your focus on childhood. It does feel very much like a peanut strip to me. Although I do genuinely mean, like, I do flippantly, but also genuinely mean that like I think. The peanuts strips in movies are deeper emotion and more complex emotionally than this movie. It's been a minute since I read a peanut strip, so I'll I'll let you be the guy on that. <laughs> I'm not like, I'm not a I'm not a huge peanuts guy, but I like yeah, it it's it it speaks to the the unfortunately low regard that I do that I do have for for Royal Tenenbaums. My only last thing is I just want to talk a little bit more about the music like you've been okay. you've been saying. I mean, I I was thinking the whole time I was like this is a movie very much made from the MTV generation, you know? Mhm. Mm-hmm. Uh but it's about a world where there is no MTV <laughs> at the right. same time like right. um it's deeply denying its own MTVness and <laughs> I just found the soundtrack, even though I like the soundtrack, apart mm-hmm. from the film, 
I felt that it really overwhelmed my senses while I was watching it. Like, oh, it totally is so I, I, reliant in terms on of the music. Brechtian stuff. And I'm saying Brechtian oh, yeah. without even knowing really Brecht that much. But like, okay, in terms of moments that pop you out of the movie, like, yeah, yeah the music is constantly being like. Here is where the music starts. I'm a new song. You know, it's like fucking <laughs> record. Yeah. 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 You might drop, as well see right. a needle drop every time, yeah. you know, when Margot like walks off the green line bus to see Richie for the first time. It's oh. such an obvious, like it, it's, it's like memeable, you know, it's, it's like so memeable made yeah. it, for TikTok almost. I know. Yeah. I mean, and moment by moment, beautiful. Sure. I'd rewatch that scene of Gwyneth Paltrow getting on the bus these days by Nico, you know, like at that exact beat. It was amazing mm-hmm. how long it had been. And I knew exactly when the song sure, was going to start. Sure, sure, know? sure. Totally. Um, yeah. So kind of like <laughs> these like disembodied scenes are, are quite lovely. And they do kind of remind me of like music video character development too. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you know? so, totally. Um, I don't know. I found that I found that interesting, and I, I also, yeah, just to repeat it, like the iPod moment of the, of this all mm-hmm. um, seems well. That is yeah. really interesting because that is what I mean. We had it a little bit with tapes and CDs. But even more than that, the ability to queue up a song from such a large library. CDs, you can queue up a song, but only from that one CD. Mm -hmm. Uh, Queue up almost any song in the world and start it to play just for you at any point in your life as your own soundtrack to whatever breakup just happened, test you just aced. Mm-hmm. you know meal you just had that was like whatever like yeah th- that that is a very ipody uh instinct yeah yeah and it's kind of an homage to this like 70s moment like it brings to mind for me um even though it's a single that's a, a single artist soundtrack um harold and mod right like, i've never seen harold and mod and it reminds me of the cover of harold and mod I'm like sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, I mean, uh, there's some elements that are Harold and Maudie about about this this movie, particularly like, the youthful relationship of this like old woman and um, late adolescent um, Harold. Um, but it's really different for so that's all Cat Stevens soundtrack, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and. What happens in that movie is is that um, the soundtrack comes in for these like interludes, right? You have these very quiet, um, subtle scenes between the two characters, and then we have you know Harold is walking, or um, they go on a drive, or something like this. Then the soundtrack comes in to kind of move us between the scenes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but this is just slathered on top of. Every moment in which, like, any of this could could have some oxygen. It's just, 
It's a suffocating soundtrack. <laughs> I would love to hear what this did. I would love to hear from like a long time like uh, music supervisor, like what this did to the the industry as far as music supervisors mm. go. Like, is it did it did it have a big effect of like now every drop has to be because in some ways you can really yeah. appreciate that like okay Wes Anderson is not trying to like overly manipulate you with the perfectly I mean he's still trying to be trying to manipulate you but he's like being like here's the moment when I'm going to manipulate you by like yeah really being obvious with the songs but I wonder with like music supervision if like it changed how people the kinds of songs people had to look for genre wise or the you know are we all of a sudden looking for big recognizable pop songs did budgets mm-hmm. on music budget supervision and soundtrack budgets go up um because mm-hmm. my moment for this was the high fidelity soundtrack i was just gonna say yeah this is the same no it's one year after high fidelity oh really i would have thought high fidelity yeah. was earlier but yeah high fidelity yeah. was my yeah. royal same Tenenbaums moment. bombs soundtrack yeah. Oh, and I I had the same feeling about that soundtrack. I love that soundtrack. I also love Gross Point Blank. Oh um, man, I don't. That know was that right one. before that. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, the John Cusack soundtracks of that time were killer. Right. But what made High Fidelity different? And let's not even like go into the quality of that movie, but mm-hmm. how it's using its soundtrack is it's clearly incredibly metatextual, like and in diegetic, like his character is constantly talking about the songs Mm -hmm. playing, putting them on, talking about it, like commenting on it while he's listening to them. You know, it's a completely different experience of, of a soundtrack and the soundtrack becomes a character in that movie in a different, like the soundtrack in the Royal Tenenbaums is like, this scary monster that's like lingering over this world, like like I'm gonna like put this, you know, it, it's so authoritarian, authoritarian and kind of like controlling yeah. over everything that you, you don't get any choices about how you feel in scenes, mm-hmm. and I think that's also why people get very kind of um, one or the other about this stuff. They're yeah. they're either what you said like basic like your basic either side right it's like right either you're a hater who's you know out hipstering the hipster and saying right. like well i'm too good for this i know the original I references don't like or something like that yeah, yeah i don't like that i also don't like the basic bitch like starbucks soundtrackiness that right. would kind of come out of this you know i I don't think that was what it was in 2001, but like by no. 10 years later, surely yeah. that was, yeah. you know, what this well, was. Well, it's so. really funny that Wes Anderson's idea of a like hip soundtrack is like a still pretty popular B-side by like the Rolling Stones, you know, that yeah. like, oh, have you heard this? <laughs> have you heard this I Rolling know. Stones song? It's like, dude, some Rolling Stones songs are fantastic, but like... This isn't like you're not you're not playing me like an ECM deep cut or something like that. It's like very like no, yeah. Uh, he and and you know what? This thing of like you can't win either way. I think that's Wes Anderson's fault. I think he is. People talk <laughs> about how controlling he is. He's mm-hmm. he's made it so you either are down with. He makes it very clear what he's trying to make you feel. 
There's not a lot of ambiguity. Maybe that's what it is and why it doesn't feel like life to me. There doesn't mm-hmm. feel like there's a lot of ambiguity. Choice. Yeah. Or choice. Right. Yeah. And so because yeah. when there is ambiguity, you can choose uh, how you feel about things. And so I mean, just, just like, think about cachet, <laughs> like, which we more. had just discussed. Yeah, yeah. Well, just like the complete unwillingness to give you any sense of certainty about anything yes, that, that yes. film ends with. Right. And it does feel and like Hanukkah spinning out into chaos. has such strong opinions, too. He's also, yeah. like, trying to hold the audience's, like, feet to the fire. And even right. so is giving – is allowing more of your free will to be there than Wes Anderson is. Yeah. Have we just – is Wes Anderson a fascist filmmaker? Did we – have we come to this conclusion? I really no. need to see the French Dispatch to answer that question in full. <laughs> okay. Because okay. I, I would have definitely said yes, but then I I kind of heard that that movie is his attempt to reckon with it, which is probably fascist in itself, but I would <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't would really to... think he's like, you know, the, the no, 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 but, thrown around a lot, but yeah. No, but it, it is, yeah, of course. I That's why I've been saying authoritarian. You yeah, know? it's very it's, strict. It's, it's restrictive. Yeah. It's... Yeah, and and so like the fact that you feel kind of like a joker, whether you're like, oh, I love this or oh, I hate this, is like, yeah, well, sure, you made yeah. a thing that just like people either feel exactly how you want them to feel about it or they don't. So congrats, I, I guess. And it's like, it's like, okay, it is one that I'm not going to say. Oh, he is a capital F fascist. Like, no, of course, he's, of course, uh, with the Proud Boys. <laughs> that would be Yo, really funny. that would be wild <laughs> seeing Proud Boys just no. like gear up for this movie and just like watch. I imagine him in like the little like sidecar of like a <laughs> motorcycle or something like that with them with his, yeah but so I'm not saying that but I do yeah. think he has a fascist aesthetic um, which you know it is all about this kind of like purity this innocence this mm-hmm. cleanliness mm-hmm. this hyper control um, that um, that is also very tactical taxonomical it's a you know it's like he's really into these dioramas and like mm-hmm. these are fascist tendencies these and are taxidermical too everything yeah, is you're like, right taxidermical too yeah yeah i don't know if that's necessarily like what i would i don't i don't know about the fascism of taxidermy no 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 no. But... i was just thinking of another t- yeah you just I'm yeah just kind of no it is part of the <laughs> no it's but but it made sense there yeah. is this whole yeah. thread with the uh with the the bull's head or whatever, or the, what is it? It's a boar's oh, head. Oh, right. right. It's a specific kind of boar or something. It's like the so the javelina. Weird. The javelina. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Right. So I would I would say that, but I, but um, I need to see the French Dispatch. I'm going to, and I'm gonna I'm gonna circle back one more time to say Asteroid City is complicated and fraught. But it's messy in a way that I've never seen him be messy. And and I liked the way in which it was really about the crisis of his own aesthetic. Like, yeah, you just have to stay with it. And that's cool. That's what it's about. So I'm you gotta down. Tell me what. You yeah, I, I got to see it. Yeah. And this is kind of why I wanted to, like I said, why I wanted to talk about Royal Tenenbaums because it's in the air for sure. People are kind of having this moment mm-hmm. of and it's looking just, back I on mean, him two years ago, but uh, you know, twentieth anniversary of the of the movie. 
Yeah, so this is, yeah, it's also this is our untimely two year, two 20th year. anniversary episode. <laughs> <laughs> There's timely and untimely uh, elements. Well, should we go to the genre reveal? I feel ready, yeah. What do you got for me? I, well, first let me... What's your genre? Did you come up with one? I did. Um, Before the episode? Or were it, was it kind of no? It was it was my I'll, I'll reveal <sighs> my slowing. my behind the scenes style is you know I have a little note card here that I keep track of time time codes for edits and such and I'll I'll occasionally just start to write down words and be mm-hmm. like do those form into a specific genre or not you know nice um, yeah. But I like how you like put on sunglasses and a beret as you do that part too. Yeah, yeah, but I can't. Yeah, yeah. I have to describe that to the listener. Totally, totally. I have a cape that. Um, really He's got a bongo. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, okay. And a bong. And, and a bong. Yeah. Uh, the yeah, I'm really bongo. I'm really trying to get into the vibe of Margot's first husband. Um, <laughs> so I can't. So my genre for the Royal Tenenbaums is flat white. Well, I like that. Yeah, the, I, like the color or the house paint, right? Well, yes, and also like it's a coffee drink. It's a hip little coffee drink. Oh, but what it is, is that? Tell me, I don't fl- know a flat a, white. A flat white is um. God, what is it? Because I because it's let's see. Because what I got when I was when I was in uh, Edinburgh with my shows was mm-hmm. a long black. Which was which I felt. Oh, I was where like, did you go with your your comedy, Dave? Yeah, with the at the, at the Edinburgh Festival. Okay, flat oh. white is a <laughs> flat white is a coffee drink <laughs> consisting of espresso with microphone, steamed milk with small fine bubbles, and a glossy or velvety consistency. Mm. Uh, it's like a latte, but smaller in volume and with less foam. Higher proportion of coffee to milk. Whereas a long black is just like an Americano, but I think Americano is you pour the water in first and then dump the espresso shot. But a long black, you start with the espresso and then you slowly do the hot water on top. And I just felt cool ordering something that wasn't a flat white because everyone was ordering flat whites. Anyway, it's a very intentionally punny name for the fact Mm -hmm. that I think this movie is white people shit. And I really wanted to say – peanuts in some way but i think the flatness of a comic strip panel of the repressedness you know the other words i wrote were peanuts and repressed here so it's just like uh, it's in it's it's a flat white (laughs) this royal tenenbaums (laughs) is is uh is a flat white this is i'm tempted to like go into some jerry seinfeld territory about you know like about coffee? Why aren't the coffees just coffee with cream or something <laughs> stupid like that? You know, please <laughs> like, go ahead. I want to hear more. No, of this I don't want stuff. to. I don't want to. You're compelling me. You, you brought it up. I love it. No, I did. I, I shouldn't have. I should not admit that I have those kinds of thoughts. Also, your, your like, Why can't was... we just have normal coffee? Why aren't the coffees? Just... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Oh, so um, what's your genre? Okay, mine is please don't welcome me to the dollhouse. Hell yeah, love it. Couple of punny, punny ones here. Punny son, sons of bitches, or as The Rock says in Fast and Furious, 
some bitches. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> Can you tell me what's the difference between a son of a bitch and a some bitch? Like, is it math? Some is there some <laughs> some bitch is just know. it's just American, dude. It's some just like, bitch. Some bitch is the is the Murica version of Murica. son of a bitch. You know, he is so the way that he pronounces that though is some bitch. Well, like, it really really going into it. I it only end. is in the last few of those movies okay. that I feel like someone really gave him a note that was like. So this is going to be one of your, like, five main things. So let's really add <laughs> syllables so to this. Bitch. You know? It's like, yeah, it's, yeah. Okay. Um, well. But yeah, I like that. Please don't welcome well, me. Well, you some bitch. It's been good talking well, to you some about the bitch. Uh, Well, genre reveal party at gmail.com is the email address for folks. I mean, if the, ever there were... Uh, an episode designed to provoke controversy. It's this one. Let's get the dialogue popping, you know? Uh, email us, though. Email us your thoughts. E- you know, if you disagree, we, we like, we like disagreement. Uh, mm-hmm. we like agreement as well. So just tell us we did a great job also. Um, yeah. And we also want to be hearing if, if there are family movies as we close out yes, this season. Yes. Dave especially wants engagement. So if you Please. can address them to my, Dave. My email address is this is Mar at gmail.com. I'll also read those. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yeah, as we come to close this season, we're going to be talking a little bit more about like, you know, family in films. Yeah. Broadly. And, you know, what we're thinking about this. this we're going to see is- if we can abolish the family within the last sort of four episodes or so of, of this podcast. Are we establish communism and abolish the family? It, it's we're setting the horizon very close. All right. That's a lot of pressure for these <laughs> hey, final. You got to keep it ambitious, man. You got to keep challenging yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, at genre reveal pod on Instagram and Twitter uh also once again want to uh apologize for the Teorema mix up uh that that seems destined to become a mythical episode but uh Joanna Isaacson will be on the show uh at some point hopefully soon and um yeah, I th- I th- I think that's it. We'll, we'll you know yeah. stick around. We'll see you next Till week. next week, you some bitches. Bye.